He's here to say what made the list. Top Man! Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses, welcome back into the Aqua Cave podcast feed for another edition of Top Man, getting you all some list-based entertainment. My name is Johnny C, and uh, we might as well go ahead and get started with our countdown. Now, apologies up front, folks, because comedy is, of course, subjective, and today we're going to try to make you laugh by talking about the top 20 Riff Tracks videos on demand. Now, probably need a little bit of explanation just in case. Now, what the hell is Riff Tracks? Well, if y'all remember Mystery Science Theater 3000, fantastic television program that was around in the 90s and, of course, had an awesome revival on Netflix that unfortunately got canceled, Riff Tracks is sort of a continuation of the original, well, not the original, but the the 90s lineup of comedians who continue to talk over some of the worst films of all time. Uh, Now, they've got a couple of different ways that you can enjoy their content. For movies that are recently released, think Twilight, for example, because Twilight's one of my absolute favorites. You can purchase, uh, you know, for a low price, like an audio track that you can sync up with your copy of Twilight and listen to their jokes as you quote-unquote watch the movie. And that's totally cool, and I love that type of shit as well. However... The films that we're going to talk about today are fully integrated films that you could purchase from Rift Tracks, Prime Video, what have you, like any place like that. And I want to make it clear up top, like I have nothing to do with, I mean obviously, do you really think Rift Tracks is reaching out to fucking the Aqua Cave to get some fucking free advertisements? No. I just happened to put one on the other day and, and I thought to myself, God, I've because I've worn these things out. I've watched them so many times, which I'll explain. I just I haven't watched them in a while. And it really made me want to figure out which was my favorite, etc., etc. Now, as I mentioned in my Brightman episode on Old Glory Thunder, I'm a huge MST3K mark. And uh, back years ago, like 2010, I worked from home for like seven years before... Everybody else worked from home. And not that that makes me special or anything like that, but, you know, I constantly needed shit to listen to. And Rift Tracks Video On Demand was the perfect combination because I could sort of play it through a speaker in my office, in my house, in my house, if you will, and just sort of listen to it, especially ones that I'd seen a hundred times, and just kind of ignore it and get my work done, etc. It's just like listening to a podcast, in my opinion. That being said, you could absolutely watch these things, and you should watch them with the movie. I just got to the point where my favorite ones, I'd just seen so many times, I didn't even need the video. It's just the audio that I really wanted anyway, because like I said, I sort of wanted that white noise. And like I said, the list is purely subjective, so I apologize for that, but you can't go wrong with any of these, in my opinion. For each title, I'll give a brief explanation of what the movie is, and maybe some rationalization as to why it got ranked in the position that it did. Sound good? All right, here we go. Now, I've got one honorable mention that couldn't make the list. And it breaks my heart because it's one of my favorites. From 1949, Batman and Robin, the cereal. No, not the breakfast cereal. It's one of those old black and white, like, 10-minute long, and there's 14 of them. Like Flash Gordon. You know, it starts at Flash Gordon, Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. You know, shit like that. And this Batman and Robin serial is just fucking amazing, all right? Uh, they take on the wizard, a supervillain invented for this serial. Robin's costume, tremendous. Plus, I mean, it's 1949. We got lots of gangsters that talk fast and wear high trousers, see? <laughs> Not to mention Gabe, everyone's favorite gangster. And it's Batman. It's an awful Batman. It's perfect. So why only an honorable mention, you might say? Well, because this serial is like 13 episodes long, and as of this recording, there's no way that you can just watch it as one continuous long film. Like, you have to start and stop each episode individually. Now, totally worth it. Totally worth it. To the point where this bad boy would be in the top 10 if I could stream it as one continuous film. So sorry, Bats. Only an honorable mention this go-around. Number 20. From 1960... Neutron, the Atomic Superman versus the Death Robots. <laughs> what? 
Yes, I know, quite a long title indeed. This is a tremendous black and white film featuring a professional wrestler, a masked luchador, if you will, a gentleman by the name of Wolf Rivenskis. From, uh, he's a Latvian wrestler. It's just one of those things, man, that caught on in the 60s. There's like four of these bad boys. This particular one I purchased on a whim because I knew it starred. Well, I knew it was one of those like professional wrestlers taking on, uh, you know, as a superhero, taking on supervillains type of deal. And this one didn't disappoint. You know, one of the things that the film itself has going for it is that it's dubbed to begin with. And the dubbing is absolutely terrible. And Rift Tracks absolutely has fun with that. But at the same time, I, I can't turn away uh, from what is actually on my screen. Because it's a luchador as a superhero. Like, it's tremendous. He just busts out wrestling moves. A hurricane rata against some robots? Why not? The individual that's the supervillain he fights, Dr. Kirante, is basically uh, the great Kali come to life in the 1960s. So if you're a wrestling fan out there, I really recommend this one to you. Like, it's number 20 for a reason compared to these other ones, but it gets a special, like, it has a little bit of extra specialness because it is related to professional wrestling. Unfortunately, it's not like Mil Mascarist or someone like that that we could really make fun of. It's difficult for me even to find out information about Neutron himself. Uh, I don't know if Neutron ever you know, put on a five-star classic in the Tokyo Dome. All right, But he did take on some uh, death robots in 1960, and Rift Tracks had their way with him. And for that, I appreciate it. Number 19, coming at us from 1991. A movie that when I saw on video store shelves, rented immediately. Immediately. It is indeed cool as ice. Starring Vanilla Ice. You've probably seen the clip on YouTube where Vanilla Ice jumps the fence on a motorcycle with no ramp or incline to use for the jump. I mean... This movie, you don't even need the riff tracks for. And that that will be a trend that some of these movies will have going for them. But good lord. I mean, talk about a movie that absolutely deserves to be taken to the woodshed, if you will. But, flip side, it's like the perfect encapsulation of like 1991. And it's the perfect encapsulation of... Oh my god, I can't believe we thought Vanilla Ice was cool. Like, it works on so many fucking levels. Uh, it's got some awful kid acting. Some fantastic uh, guys doing uh, doing some uh, New York accents. It's got the dad from Family Ties as well. It's just an all-around classic. I, I mean, awkward Vanilla Ice performances be damned. This movie deserves to be on the list. I mean, it's it's you're gonna have fun watching this movie no matter what. It, again, you could just put on Cool as Ice with some buddies or someone, or just by yourself and put it on to pass the time and listen to the nonsensical words that come out of Vanilla's mouth. But at the same time, when you've got riff tracks pointing out some extra absurdity to you, it's just a winning combination. So check out Cool as Ice with or without the riff tracks. But that's one of the reasons why it makes number 19. It works. Either way, even though, come on, it's fucking cool as ice. Number 18, from 1997, Star Games. A piece of shit, low-budget movie, directed by Graydon Clark, uh, who also directed a feature called Dark Future, which is also a tremendous riff tracks. I guess you could say maybe it ties with this one, but we're not going to talk about it. Uh, it stars a beleaguered Tony Curtis, just trying to, to make a buck, I guess. It's a it's a ridiculous, I-want-to-be-Star-Wars, low-budget sci-fi movie with some of the worst special effects and absolute worst kid acting you've ever seen in your entire life. The Sega Game Gear makes an appearance, and it's 1997, so that should tell you what kind of budget we're working with. And folks, there's more diabetes mentioned in this film than you would get hanging out with Wilford Brimley one-on-one. Alright, so it's just... I mean, it's bad. Not to mention, random appearances of a clown in a Star Wars room. I can't even do it justice. Like, Star Games is one of those movies that you can't believe it got made, but Rift Tracks brings it to your attention. 
and they have a lot of fun at its expense. I don't know that you could watch it without the riff tracks, but definitely watch it with the riff tracks. I mean, obviously, this is the top 20 riff tracks themes after all, or films after all. But man, uh, lots of great references to, to Earth-related pop culture, like Star Trek, video games. Uh, and don't forget, Brian! Because the, uh, the main character's name is Brian, and they say it about 16 times per minute. It's fantastic. And, and, you know, Star Games has a special place in my heart, and that's why it makes the list. Number 17 from 1996, just one year earlier, Roller Gator. Oh, boy. It's the 90s. Let's uh, make a buck off of rollerblades. Kind of like that movie Airboard, but Airboard is far superior to Roller Gator. Uh, it stars Joe Estevez. You know, Martin Sheen's brother. Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez's uncle. <laughs> he may have done this just for booze money or for a little bit of cocaina. I don't know, and that's allegedly. But this movie is all about a talking alligator that Joe Estevez wants to uh, steal so he can add him as an attraction to his carnival that I guess runs every day on the boardwalk somewhere. <laughs> Joe Estevez is the owner of this and operator of this carnival, and he walks around this carnival like he's king shit. And not to mention, the way this thing is shot is pathetic. It's like done on a camcorder. And you know that talking alligator I mentioned? He's a puppet! And he only appears... (laughs) I mean, obviously it's a puppet in a low-budget movie, so every time the puppet appears on screen, they have to find convoluted ways to make sure you can't see the dude's hand that's in the puppet. Oh, but don't worry, fans. You do see the arm many times. He's got a super annoying voice, and he's got a hip uh, mid-90s lady companion that rollerblades him around where he needs to go. Uh, don't forget that they sometimes battle ninjas as well. Uh, skateboarding ninjas, I might add. So... That should tell you everything you need to know. Now, you might say to yourself, Johnny C., with all that fun wrapped up in a bow, why is it only number 17? And I'll tell you, folks, it has an annoying guitar-based soundtrack that plays through the entire film. And sometimes, even with the hilarity of riff tracks, i got to turn it off because I want to put a bullet in my brain. But... It's still definitely worthy of the number 17 position here on Top Man uh, in regards to Rift Tracks related entertainment. Number 16 from 1988, kind of a newer one, or one I recently discovered after working at home Robo Vampire. Oh my god, another dubbed movie. And it's it's a Japanese, I think it was, uh, I don't know what language it, it takes place in, okay? But even the folks that are speaking English are dubbed over in English, so that should tell you something. It's called Robo Vampire uh, because it's about some drug police. Are you a drug cop, Tom? Oh, you gotta get the drug cops. <laughs> it's about drug cops, one of them who gets killed, I guess. I can't tell him apart from the other drug cops. And he gets turned into basically... A dude in a Halloween costume of RoboCop. How did these guys not get sued? How is this movie allowed to be released? And this RoboCop drug cop takes on zombies? Vampires? I'm not sure. Because he's trying to take down a cocaine ring that seems to be protected by vampires. That hop around quite a bit. Now I know in Japanese, if I'm not mistaken, I hope it's Japanese, I'm not trying to generalize, uh, vampire culture, vampires do hop around, and that's totally fine. Nothing against that part of the culture. But it does look a little ridiculous on film, especially when they're fighting a broke-ass version of RoboCop. And, And again, you might say to yourself, well, Johnny C., with all that awesomeness, why is it only number 16? And I'll tell you straight up, it's kinda gross. Like practical special effects, like it, I don't like it's just kind of gross. Like it, I don't know that I could put this on at any time. Like if I'm watching, if I'm having lunch, especially, like it's fucking gross. All right, it is great, but it's gross. I, I don't really know any other way to put it, and and that's why it's only at number sixteen. Uh, folks, number fifteen is up next, and I don't mind telling you, it is unlike anything I've ever seen before in my entire life. 
It is from 1982. It is called Attack of the Super Monsters. Now, what the hell is Attack of the Super Monsters? Well, it's a cartoon film that is actually four episodes of a, of a Japanese cartoon cut together to make like a 90-minute movie. Uh, the cartoon in question is loosely translated to Dinosaur War Eisenborg. Well, that doesn't tell you anything about it, so let me tell you more about it. It's about... Well, let me ask you this. Have you seen Voltron? Power Rangers? Shit like that. It's a cartoon about a super team and a super robot that fight talking dinosaurs that have come back from the prehistoric age to wreak havoc on the future. All right? Now, this super team of individuals that drive the super robot is a brother and sister duo named Jim and Jem Starbuck. No relation to the Bucks. Uh, that can form a super robot thing named Gemini but only for like three minutes, which is irrational details. Here's the fun part. Most of the time, it's an animated cartoon, but whenever it's time to get in the super robot or to fight the dinosaurs or what have you, folks, it's live-action Power Rangers-style dudes in rubber suits, and I couldn't love it more. I mean, not to mention, the rest of the super team is classic... I guess American stereotypes. Like I said, you got the brother sister in charge. You got a you got a fat guy who who trips a lot, and you got a smart guy who makes a lot of mistakes. It's tremendous. This movie is absolutely bonkers. I can't believe that it's like a hybrid. It's like half this, half that. It's a hell of a lot of fun though, and the the folks there at Rift Tracks have a lot of fun at, at its expense, especially when it's sort of Tetrisy sounding Russian theme song plays. <laughs> And the super team marches through the street. Like, I don't know. I, I can't even do it justice. But, it, it, you know, I, it's sort of a twofold for me. Number one, I, I was super excited to, like, see this different form of entertainment and be exposed to it. But then number two, it's just hilarious Rift Tracks shenanigans. So check it out. Number 14, from 1985, a real low-budget flick called Galaxy Invader. Now, folks, this film predates Predator by two years, and I don't mind telling you, I feel like the folks in charge of Predator saw Galaxy Invader and said, hey, let's do that, but let's cut out the white trash and give it a budget. Because this is a story of a single, solitary alien who lands on Earth, and uh, once he, he, he crash lands, okay, he gets tangled up with some 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 country folk is the easiest way I could put it. He basically does battle with a, a white trash family in the, in the little town that they live in, okay? Now, this movie is actually funny, again, without the riff tracks. I don't know that anyone in this movie is a professional actor, and if they are, they should be ashamed of themselves. The alien costume is absolutely awful. The alien looks like a, a walking, talking uh, piece of excrement. Okay, and I don't mean it looks bad. I just mean like he looks like poop, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with poop. We all do it. I think there's even a book about it. And the leader of the white trash family slash militia that this galaxy invader does battle with is one of the greatest film characters in history. This dude, the entire movie, wears a white t-shirt with like oil stains on it that has a circle rip in the middle of the shirt that is just perfect. Like, if I could buy this guy's shirt and wear it, well, you know what? Fuck it. I would do it. It's amazing. And I don't know how they picked this outfit for the guy, but it's absolutely perfect. You know, he does all sorts of awesome white trash shit, like berates his kid, who's an idiot, tells his daughter she's worthless and she just needs to find a man. Uh, you know, talk shit to his wife. Now, these are all terrible things, all right? Terrible, terrible things. I want to make that very clear. But, you know, this guy is basically white trash Schwarzenegger going up against this galaxy invader, and it's just amazing. Throw in an unnecessary subplot about a school teacher who's looking for aliens, and it's just top quality material. Oh, unlucky number 13. Well, it's 1989, and you're the son of legendary martial artist Bruce Lee. How do you make a name for yourself? Well, you head over to Germany and star in a low-budget German flick called Laser Mission. Because it's a movie that stars Brandon Lee a couple of years before The Crow. And actually, 
I'm glad that I saw this movie again for two reasons. One, I grew up just a massive fan of The Crow, uh, starring Brandon Lee. And I think Brandon Lee does a really good job at it, and he has a lot of charisma. And I'm not gonna I'm not joking about this. Like, I think Brandon Lee probably could have had himself a career. He's oh he has a lot of personality, and it shines in this uh low budget American sort of James Bond style flick about a a mercenary man. And if you don't know that Mr. Brandon Lee plays a mercenary man, don't worry, because whenever he's on screen, he comes equipped with his awesome 80s theme song, Mercenary Man, Mercenary Man. It's like if a movie has, uh, okay, think about Top Gun Maverick, all right? You know that Hold My Hand song by Lady Gaga? It's as if, imagine a movie where they have this sick promotional tie-in with a song, but they don't have an original score, and so every time you need to play music, it's some part of Hold My Hand with Lady Gaga. Maybe there's lyrics, maybe there aren't. Maybe it's the beginning, maybe it's the middle. But that's what this movie Laser Mission has going for it with this song, Mercenary Man. Like I said, he's sort of an American James Bond. Ernest Borgnine is in this fucker as well. A special shout-out to Debbie A. Monahan, who plays the love interest, who's... Hey... How's it going, Debbie A. Monahan? You're pretty hip for a late 80s cheesy action flick gal, if I don't mind telling you. But again, I mean, come for the Brandon Lee kind of being charming. Stay for the Mercenary Man. Count how many times they play it and take a shot every time the lead singer gets to actually say, Mercenary Man. Number 12. From 2010. A film that's often hailed as one of the worst movies ever made. It's not The Room. It is Birdemic, Shock, and Terror. And the little preface I gave about being one of the worst movies of all time is going to tell you why it's number 12. Because this is another film that you could absolutely watch with or without the riff tracks and enjoy it. However, flip side of that argument, it gets all the way up to number 12 because the riff tracks edition is fucking hilarious all right now this is a real low budget flick that's trying to say something about the environment which is okay but it's about the birds basically revolting and attacking society kind of sounds like a hitchcock film you know rope yeah that's the hitchcock film it's clearly based on rope but it's about a uh, a salesman at a company who likes to give 50 percent discounts who finally meets the girl of his dreams, a Victoria's Secret fashion model. And and after they consummate their love, you can draw a line in the sand for this movie because then it becomes the bird's attack and we have to survive a continuous onslaught of poorly rendered animated birds that are attacking us. Uh, good thing we have some guns, though, and meet some folks along the way that happen to have guns in their minivan. Now... The riff tracks provides so much hilarity, making fun of the lead actor's performance, his inability to speak English or complete sentences. But I will warn you ahead of time, once the birds attack, the riff tracks is still hilarious. The movie is still a shit show that you can point and laugh at. But my God, the shrieking and the sounds that the birds make, sometimes I can't get through the whole thing because it's just... I will say, though, if you're not just listening to it, it's worth it because as the birds make that noise, you can see the actors struggle to move their hands around as if they're swatting actual birds away that are in front of their face. It's just a complete train wreck, and you have to see it to believe it. Number 11, should to the surprise of no one, this movie getting on the list, also from 1991... Samurai Cop, a film that I mention constantly on WCW Must Die because one of the security guards in R&B Security looks like the lead actor of Samurai Cop. This movie is another great hybrid of like six movies in one. It's half Lethal Weapon ripoff, half ninja movie, half martial arts movie, half uh, Showtime sex movie because there's a ridiculous amount of nudity cut out on the riff tracks, I might add. And that's like sort of a thing all around. Whenever you watch the Rift Tracks version, you get a movie sort of cut to a PG-13 variant. Most of the time, but not all the time. Now, Samurai Cop is a legendary film. 
okay? And it's the first big Rift Tracks that I encountered. And so that sort of helps with its placement. The Rift Tracks is great. But another movie you absolutely need to watch without the Rift Tracks before you get to the Rift Tracks. Because the Rift Tracks will make all of the nonsense you noticed before better. And they will also point out shit you can't believe you missed the first go around. You have to watch this movie one way or the other. And if you do choose the Rift Tracks, you're not going to regret it. All right? Uh, <laughs> shoot! Shoot him! You'll get it. Just watch the movie. Just watch the fucking movie. Oh, I love you, Samurai Cop. But it's unfortunate, Samurai Cop. You couldn't make the top ten. One of the big reasons it doesn't make the top ten is because I recommend watching it without the tra- Rift Tracks attached to it and then watching it with... But I don't want to take away from the tracks, and I don't want to take away from Samurai Cop. You have to fucking see Samurai Cop before you die. But folks, this is it. Let's go to the top 10 Rift Tracks videos that you could purchase on demand. Number 10, again coming to us from the year of 1991, stars my favorite Tecmo Super Bowl athlete, uh, disgraced footballer Brian Bosworth as an undercover Alabama cop who infiltrates a motorcycle gang. The film is called Stone Cold. Unfortunately, it does not feature Steve Austin. Brian Bosworth is an absolute shit show as an actor, and Rift Tracks brings that to our attention uh, with all of the ridiculous and horrendous line delivery that Brian Bosworth gives us. But this movie also benefits a lot from having Lance Hendrickson from Aliens in a tri- and, and lots of other stuff, mind you, as an awesome crazy unhinged villain who's it's like he's auditioning to play the joker in the next batman movie it's a very cheesy early 90s action flick with so many football jokes and they do reference talk tecmo super bowl as well and so much white trash around this movie it out white trashy is white it out trashies that galaxy invader that we talked about earlier and you know what I'll give it its due, it actually contains a pretty good final action set piece as well. But Lance Hendrickson's performance is absolutely out of control. I would say definitely, I mean, you don't need to watch this without the Rift Tracks. You could go either way. But the Rift Tracks accentuates all of the ridiculousness of our side characters. There's so many motorcycle guys who are just ridiculous that deserve all the mockery that they get. Not to mention... Brian Bosworth delivers some of the cheesiest, worst one-liners in, in tough guy action movie history. And the Rift Tracks guys find ways to reuse those cheesy one-liners out of context. And it really enhances this movie. But it's absolutely worthy of a top 10 spot. You know, we've all seen so many movies like this. We grew up watching them. It's, it's a, it's, you're comfortable because that's sort of part of the Rift Tracks experience. You've got to be comfortable watching the movie that's being riffed. And I know that sounds kind of silly. And so keep that in mind as you're watching these. Really harness in on the type of movie that they're riffing. And maybe start there. You know, don't start with some of the craziness that'll be at the top five. Because if you're not comfortable with that genre of film. Start with a tough guy action flick and work your way up to the crazy musicals. And we'll get there. Don't you worry. But Stone Cold... Rounds out the top 10. And number 9, again from the year 1991, truly a golden age in cinema, Firehead. What the fuck is Firehead? Well, no, it's not some early ghostwriter film. Well, Firehead is a low-budget, psychic Russian soldier. And don't worry, folks. It's never explained how this low-budget psychic Russian soldier gets his powers. But Firehead is a dude named Ivan, and he talks like this. And he's like, hey, I can move stuff with my head, comrade. They call me Firehead. I don't know why they call me Firehead. I can't actually make fire out of my head. I can shoot some pretty cool lasers, though. But Firehead, you know, is part of the old Iron Curtain, if you will. All he wants to do is show the American folks that he's willing to fight on their side. And you know who's here to convince us that he's actually a good guy? Chris Lemon, Brew from Thunder in Paradise, Jack Lemon's son. The poor man had to watch his son act not only in Thunder in Paradise, but also Firehead. 
So Chris Lemon is like a scientist who gets tapped by, uh, I don't know, the FBI or the CIA or something because he knows Ivan from before Ivan was firehead. And he wants, you know, the, these these government agents want them to, to you know, find a, a firehead and figure out what he's all about. And the bad guy is played by goddamn uh, Captain Von Trapp himself, Christopher Plummer, slumming it in this piss-poor excuse for entertainment. Luckily, however, Rift Tracks is here to take these guys to task, and they do. There is a scene where Chris Lemon infiltrates the CIA or some shit like that, uh, wearing like a New York Yankees baseball hat and like a button-down shirt and a pair of khakis. Now, now, why is are these details important? <laughs> well, as Hawk might say, the folks over at Rift Tracks come up with an entire song based around his wardrobe as he's infiltrated this place. I mean. There's, I mean, that's just the tip of the fucking iceberg. Making fun of Firehead for not being named Firehead is another uh, common uh, thing that they fall back on as well. But this movie absolutely brings it. Again, it's one of these low-budget action films that really makes you feel comfortable with what you're watching and being riffed at the same time. The level of film that this is and the amount of money that was put into this film can be summed up with just one piece of information. This film features an appearance from a fast food restaurant. Of all the fast food restaurants you could choose to include in your film and pay for, well, folks, rallies or checkers, depending on your local area, is featured in this film. There is a child actor that is absolutely dreadful, and Rift Tracks make sure to take her to task as well. Number eight from the year 2000, Radical Jack. Now, Radical Jack is the type of movie you've heard of or seen a thousand times. There's a troubled ex-soldier, secret agent type guy. He's the best of the best. But he's already had his last mission. He's given it all up for a quiet life. Maybe on a ranch or some shit like that. This particular troubled ex-soldier is still trying to deal with the untimely death, death of his family, who were killed in an explosion from an old nemesis. Well, this old nemesis is back. And if Radical Jack can come back and complete just one more mission, he'll not only save the world and the country <laughs> that he lives in, but also get vengeance for his murdered wife and child. And who better to portray this secret agent than Miley's dad, Billy Ray Cyrus? Oh my god. So that should tell you right off the bat, the Rift Tracks crew is all over this fucker with all sorts of achy-breaky-heart-style jokes. But add in the fact that Radical Jack's love interest is played by Michelle Pfeiffer's sister, who doesn't need a first name because that's all you need to know. The budget on this thing is non-existent. The villain is played by the guy from Back to the Future. No, not Biff. No, not Crispin Glover. You know that one scene in Back to the Future where the drunk guy's like, Watch where you're going! Great! Drunk pedestrian? Well, that guy, Buck Flowers, plays the arms dealer in the South who's making some sort of covert arms deal with, I don't know, underexplained clandestine military organizations. But Radical Jack not only features a terrible honky-tonk-style soundtrack, but the Rift Tracks guys like to improv some more tunes just like they do in Firehead. When Michelle Pfeiffer's younger sister has to nurse Radical Jack back to health, she gives him a sponge bath. And what would a sponge bath be without a song from the folks at Rift Tracks? Sponge bath. Sponge bath. I don't want to spoil it. But Billy Ray Cyrus is out of control. Mullet is in full effect. All right? Uh, you gotta watch this movie. And once you do, Take note, if you really enjoy Radical Jack, there is an enti- the, the film studio that made Radical Jack has all sorts of films that are available in the Rift Tracks collection, all right? usually starring some of the same actors and directed by the same person as well. They are a hoot, and, and they all have such high aspirations. They want to do so much, but folks, the budget just won't allow it. And, and I like, I do admire Shooting for the Moon. And I think that makes it all the better when you crash down hard and Rift Tracks is here to ease the pain. Number seven, taking us way back into the past, 1978, 
Buffalo Rider. This movie, folks, I don't even know how to explain it. It's half historical fiction, half educational short, half documentary, question mark, half animal, lovely, lovely uh, little animal movie, half movie actually featuring narrative characters. The movie rocks back and forth between different narrators for the entire time, and it tells a story of Buffalo Jones, the man who wandered the Wild West on, and on a buffalo. He tamed a wild buffalo and rode it like a fucking horse. And this guy's fucking old-timey uh, mustache or facial hair configuration, I don't know what to call it. It should be illegal. Folks, there is not one real actor in this film. There's also no one on set to make sure no animals are harmed. So, viewer, beware. I just don't even know what to do with this movie. I mean, it's completely unwatchable as a film. When you pair it with riff tracks, though, it becomes one of the easiest watches in the history of our sport. Like, it's that bad, and the riff tracks is that good. And the theme song, Buffalo Jones, I don't even know where to begin. And, and I'm not kidding when I say that it doesn't know what it is. Like, sometimes it acts like it's a fucking documentary. Sometimes it's like the bad movie that your teacher puts on in history class when they're hungover. I don't know any other way to describe it. I don't know if there's any historical or educational merit to this film, but I tell you what, you watch it, you're going to have a really fucking good time. Uh, Number six, and folks, this one missing the top five should tell you how strong the top five truly is. But it is an absolute classic from 1985. God, 1985, what a year. The first WrestleMania happens, and no retreat, no surrender is released to the masses. No Retreat, No Surrender wants desperately to be the Karate Kid. It is a typical suburban white guy karate movie. It's the story of a teenage boy that is bullied when he moves to a new town, that being Seattle. They move to Seattle because, you see, his dad is a karate sensei. And his dad has recently lost control of his dojo to the mob. Because in this world, the world of no retreat, no surrender, white guy karate, okay, the mob wants to take control of all the karate dojos on the West Coast. Uh, I don't know if they're going to use them as a front for drugs or if they want to train the next generation of mafia enforcer. I really don't know, and the movie doesn't either. Because as soon as he moves to Seattle, we turn into basically a knockoff of the karate kid. Except this kid already knows karate. But you know what? In Seattle, he's getting bullied by some some evil kidsters, including a fat guy. I mean, I don't know any way to put it. The movie, the movie makes no bones about it. All right. Uh, so how does this kid get on the good side of the folks in Seattle? Well, first thing he does is he makes friends with R.J., the lovable trickster who lives next door, who's an amateur slash professional break dancer. But when push comes to shove, he really needs to show the folks in Seattle that he knows karate as well. And who better to train this youngster in the art of karate, well, than the ghost of Bruce Lee. Because, folks, that's what happens. And the riffs are here, they are fast, and they are furious. There are plenty of training montages that will make you weep, because the Riff Tracks crew is giving it to this movie hard. And oh yeah, the movie, of course, as all karate movies do, ends with a big tournament. When the mob comes to town and tries to take over the Seattle dojo. And who is the mob's lead enforcer? Folks, making his American film debut, Jean-Claude Van Damme as Ivan, the Russian. He speaks like two words, and he does the splits, and he looks pissed the entire time. I mean... I didn't want to lead with Jean-Claude Van Damme being in this movie because I didn't want to take away from the nonsense and ridiculousness that is the plot of this movie. So, the ridiculous plot, a ghost, a ghost of a real person teaching karate, breakdancing. I mean, this movie has it all. Jean-Claude Van Damme is the icing on top of a full, like, 3,000 calorie ice cream sundae that you just want to eat over and over and over again. This was the movie that got me into Riff Tracks. I love it like it's my own, okay? So not I really want to make that clear. 
No retreat, no surrender, not making the top five needs to be the beacon point. You need to understand how amazing the top five is. But no retreat, no surrender is never a bad choice, but it is the choice that ends up at number six. Number five. Folks, I don't mean to sound childish, but I have a confession to make. I believe in Santa Claus. All right, Uh, maybe I don't, but I do believe that a movie called I Believe in Santa Claus that was released in 1984 is the number five greatest riff tracks release of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, we've talked about different genres of film that you are comfortable with. Uh, That way you're not thrown through a loop when random guys are talking over the movie you're watching and making fun of it. This movie is a French Christmas musical that is dubbed into English, though, so you can relax. However, it is dubbed quite poorly. What's this movie about, you might ask? Sure. (laughs) It's about a young boy who seeks out Santa Claus, who in this version of the tale lives in Rovaniemi, Finland, in a land called Lapland. Now, that could be poor translation, shitty dubbing, or maybe I'm just drunk and don't know how to read my own notes. I have seen the movie quite a bit, but I believe that's where uh, that's what that's what we're going with in terms of the uh, uh, Papa Noel legend. So why is he seeking out Santa Claus? It's real simple. Little Simon, that's our protagonist, wants to ask Santa for something for Christmas. You know, as we all do. Well, what's he want? A new car? A supermodel? The Super Nintendo, even? No. Simon wants Santa to rescue his parents. Well, goodness, where, where are the boy's parents? Oh, you know, they're just being held hostage by a warlord in Africa. What? How? Why? This is a children's movie, correct? Don't worry, though, folks. This movie, like I mentioned, is a dubbed film. So the warlord that's holding them hostage in Africa is a nice warlord and promises to let them go once the government has uh, gotten the point that this gentleman is trying to make. Now, I'm not trying to make light of real and true geopolitical situations, but folks, if you're crafting a Christmas narrative, perhaps leave out the politics, if you will. But this child does indeed seek out Santa Claus and asks him for this favor, okay? Now, Santa uses his awesome 1980s DOS-run computer uh, to confirm that the boy's parents are being held captive, but he knows he can't do it alone. And this isn't some sort of, like, Santa, like, military like thing. Like, this is a legit, like, kids movie where he's like, Oh, I'm Santa Claus and I'm wearing a Santa Claus suit. I'm not, I don't have any guns here or anything like that. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, but Santa needs help. But luckily, it turns out that Simon's elementary school teacher is also a Christmas fairy. She's also the star of this thing. She's like a 1984 French Britney Spears, like, pop star style thing. So I get the brand synergy here. You're making a musical. Get a pop star to do it. And you know, she's pretty hip and she's pretty cool. But this movie is full of awesome nonsensical Christmas songs out of nowhere. Throw in this plot to end terrorism and you have got a fucking winner global, you know, around the globe. Like, it doesn't matter what language you speak, what you believe politically. This is a Christmas movie. Well, I guess you have to do do Christmas first, but this movie can unite us. I can't even with this fucking thing. I'm not a huge Christmas fan. The Christmas time is very stressful for me personally. Um, It just is. It always has been since I became an adult. Uh, Don't weep for me, though, because I've got this movie. I walk around the Christmas season uh, singing songs from this movie that I only know from riff tracks. No more school, no more rule, no more working like a mule. Christmas days on its way. <laughs> I mean, five for two and feeling very strange. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I feel a bit like Little Red Riding Hood. Just watch the movie, please. Just watch this movie, and you will. I mean, you thought Ernest Saves Christmas was a bastardization of quote unquote traditional American Christmas. And, and you know what? I, I don't have a problem with the uh, the Christmas sort of setup here. I'm just blown away by the politics of it all. It's just... And throw in the fact that it's dubbed. All the songs are in French, but of course they're resung in English. 
It's just, it's everything you want from a movie you want to make fun of. So check it out. Number four, 1987. A film written, directed by, and starring a guy that knows Taekwondo. The gentleman's name is YK Kim, and he is the legendary brain behind Miami Connection. Now, you might have heard of Miami Connection if you're into the uh, movies that are so bad they're good scene. This was a film that was unearthed, like, in the 2000s, apparently. Like, someone found a copy of it and was like, oh my god, I'm displaying this at some, like, midnight showing, and then it gained a cult following, and here we are. This is another movie that I absolutely think works with or without the riff tracks. Um... But the riff tracks is absolutely legendary, including uh, one of my favorite gags of all time, where they do a random Eugene Levy impression, which I know we're out of, out of all uh, over sorts here. But this is a film about a rock band, an '80s synth rock band that fights drug dealing ninjas. The band's name is Dragon Sound, and every member of the rock band knows Taekwondo, and all of their songs are mostly taekwondo based or songs about how awesome they are as friends friends for eternity honesty loyalty we're together through thick or thin they also sing songs about the battles they're engaged in against the ninja i don't know the rest of the words against the ninja it's so fucking good like i can't even the cheese factor here is out of control this like Number one, you got a band that sings all Taekwondo-based songs, okay? And then they're on stage at, like, a club, and the, the fucking drunk patrons are like, Yeah! Dragon Sound! They're the fucking best band I've ever seen! I came here to do coke off of somebody's tits and listen to Dragon Sound! It's amazing. Like I said, you can watch it with or without the tracks. Uh, I definitely recommend both because it's something you sort of have to experience and understand, like, the batshit crazy plot of this thing, uh, which revolves around a, a drug dealer who's pissed off that uh, one of the Dragon Sound band members is dating his sister, and then some cocaine ninjas, that's what they call them, cocaine ninjas get involved. I will say this, though. When Mr. YK Kim is involved in some action scenes, he's kind of a badass. He definitely knows his taekwondo, and that's totally cool. Um... The score as well to this music to this movie, I will give a lot of credit. It's actually pretty fucking cool. It sounds like a goddamn Nintendo game, and I mean that in a positive way. But the soundtrack has absolutely penetrated the pop culture zeitgeist. You may have seen clips from this movie uh, floating around social media years ago. I, I don't know. I can't confirm that. I know I did, and that's how I eventually fell into this thing. But I'm also the sort of person who's out there in the wild looking for stuff like this. But check out Miami Connection any way that you can. It's a treasure that was unearthed and hidden in the 80s and now is available to us in so many different ways to consume. But definitely check out the riff tracks. Number 3. 1972. Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny. And yes, I'm sorry, it's only number 3. This movie is a living commercial. Okay? There was this podunk little piece of shit theme park in Florida from 1968 to 1973 called Pirate's World. And this film was shot on location at Pirate's World and is basically an infomercial for Pirate's World. But it is indeed a film that has a narrative. And when you combine this movie with number five, I believe it's Santa Claus, this is, this is Christmas in the Johnny C household. I watch this and I watch that. non stop okay so this movie in a weird way is actually two films at once so i will try not to lose you and explain explain this properly santa and the ice cream bunny is about santa claus some santa claus variant who whose reindeer gets stuck on a beach in florida and the the sleigh that santa flies on is covered in sand and he just can't get it out he doesn't have the strength and he's slowly dying from heat stroke on the beach so he summons, using his magic, I guess, numerous children from the surrounding area to, to come to the beach with some of their favorite farm animals and see if they could pull the sleigh out of the sand. I believe he also accidentally summons Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn from the world of fiction. 
So not only are Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn displaced by time, they also find themselves in the quote-unquote real world. Now, spoiler alert, none of the animals that are summoned can actually get Santa sleigh out of the sand. And when the kids become disheartened by this, about 20 minutes into the movie, Santa sits them down and tells them a story. And this is where this, it gets kind of weird. Usually, Santa tells them the story of Thumbelina. Sometimes, there are versions of this movie where he tells them the story of Jack the Beanstalk. And no matter which version you, version you watch, the movie then transitions to a completely different movie that was shot for completely different purposes that's like 40 to 50 minutes long. One is a Pirate's World rendition of Thumbelina, and then Jack of the Beanstalk as well. Now, Rift Tracks actually has both versions of this available. I recommend the Thumbelina. Jack of the Beanstalk is fine, but the Thumbelina tiny movie within the big movie is amazing. The fucking costumes that these people have to wear, the acting, the poor girl that plays Thumbelina who constantly looks confused and doesn't know where she is. She may not, folks. I mean, it is Pirate's World. Perhaps she was abducted at sea. I don't know. If you know that this girl's been missing for some time, please contact your local authorities. She kind of looks like Mila Jovovich as well, but without the red hair, but that's aside from the point. I mean, Thumbelina, it's a treasure. I mean, Thumbelina being riffed on its own by riff tracks, especially when you consider the fact that they uh, they think one of the dudes that's one of the like uh, animals that's trying to marry Thumbelina is from New York. And he's like, hey, Thumbelina, like, I just can't even. However, after the middle movie is complete, we go back to the beach where Santa is trying to get his uh, sleigh out of the sand. And the end of the film sees the ice cream bunny arrive to rescue Santa. Now, of course, we all know the ice cream bunny. He's a legendary character from fiction and from myth and has been passed from generation to generation. Oh, what's that you say? You've never heard of the ice cream bunny? Well, neither have I, and neither have the people making this movie, because it's completely made up. It's a guy in a creepy-ass rabbit suit that almost runs over some kids when he's driving a fire truck. Please, if you do one thing in the rest of your life, well, watch everything here. But Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny is an all-time Christmas classic. Even... I, I, I played this at a family Christmas gathering in the last couple years... Wow, I had a family member who was, you know, ill and sort of in and out of states of happiness and what have you. And you know what? Even the first 10 minutes made her laugh. And that will always stand out to me as something that's uh, amazing. Uh, you know, because art, even shitty art, can do good things. So just Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny is a fantastic crowd-pleasing Christmas experience, especially when it's being riffed by the geniuses from Rift Tracks. Number Two. 1977's The Guy from Harlem. Oh my god, I could watch this any time of day, any day of the week, any anything. And it was a shootout between number one and two. I want to make that clear. The Guy from Harlem is like 0.01 points away from being number one. Now, this film is a black exploitation film about a detective from Harlem who apparently solves crimes in Miami. It is extremely poorly made, with bare-bones sets. I don't think they had filming permits also. Because most of the shit, is when it's not in the office of the private detective, it's like a hotel room or a field out in the middle of Florida where they're filming this shit. Each scene is basically one long take, alright? And it's not done for artistic purposes, like Hitchcockian films, like Rope. Hey, I think that's the second time I mentioned Rope in this podcast. But it's because they just don't have the technical acumen to do multiple shots for coverage. The action scenes are like a child in a ball pit fighting another child. Has to be seen to be believed. The obvious line flubs that they don't have the time or money to correct live in infamy. The guy that plays the guy from Harlem, I guess you could say, is an all-time worst choice for a leading man in film history. It has an amazing theme song. Guy from Harlem. Who? That cat's a bad dude. And it's got an awesome 70s disco style score. Please fucking watch this film. I don't want to give away some of the better riffing jokes, okay? 
But this movie is basically a porn also. It, it's not a porn in a sense that it's like a porno, but it's like, hi, scene one, I'm the guy from Harlem. Uh, I need you to rescue this uh, girl. Okay, I'll rescue the girl. What's that? Now I need to go have sex with the girl. All right, what's the next case? Rescue another girl. Okay, I'll go have sex with the girl. What's the ne- I mean, seriously, it's like a, it's a, it has a porno setup. Okay, rescue the girl with some shitty 70s kung fu, have sex with her, and then go rescue another one. But it's not, like, overtly explicit, all right? Um, but like I said, it's just... And it's it's such a part of the genre as well. And I, I'm not trying to talk shit about the genre. This is more so the filmmaking techniques or lack thereof filmmaking techniques. But it makes it an absolute classic and a complete winner for all time. And it's so close to our number one. But much like the Highlander said, there can be only one. And it comes to us from 1987. And it's a film called Rotor. R-O-T-O-R. It edges out the guy from Harlem because this is an actual movie movie. Barely. But if you watch them, you know, back to back, or even just you look at a clip of them, you can clearly see that Rotor was you know, designed to be an actual movie, whereas Guy from Harlem, I'm not quite sure. Now, Rotor was released the same year as Robocop, and it's a blatant copy of it. I don't know how they got away with it. Serendipity, I guess. But in the future, a Texas scientist-slash-police detective is still a few years away from perfecting a robot cop that he has been working on named Rotor. Now, Rotor stands for Robotic Officer Tactical operations research. Sometimes, though, the last R stands for reserve. It just depends on the scene and whether or not they fucked it up or not. Trust me, it happens. Now, our hero, who is the doctor slash Texas cowboy detective's name, is Cold Iron. That's right, Cold Iron. It's fucking amazing. And he is a straight-up Texas cowboy, all right? Like, this guy's supposed to be like a fucking cyborg doctor, Well, we are introduced to him by him, like, making some coffee and feeding his horse. (laughs) And, like, blowing up shit on his ranch with TNT. He's like, hoo-hoo, I blew up some stuff with TNT, and then I'm going to go create a cyborg for law enforcement. (laughs) I can't even with this fucking setup and plot. Eventually, though, as usually happens when robots are involved, some lightning strikes Rotor the robot, and he comes to life ahead of schedule with only one line of programming. Enforce the law by any means necessary. Now, when I say Rotor, the robot cop wakes up and goes on a killing spree, you might picture something in your mind. You might picture, I don't know, Robocop. Or perhaps some sort of robot-looking thing like the Terminator. Well, folks, don't forget, this is a cheap-ass movie. So the robot is actually underneath a normal-looking human-type device. And to make it just even more clear, the robot looks just like Smash, or the Repo Man, or fucking Barry Darso, the professional wrestler. Because it's just a dude that's balding with a fucking Highway Patrol trash mustache. Like, that's all this guy is, and he's supposed to be like a robot underneath. It just reeks of zero money. And the fucking Rift Tracks guys have a field day with this guy's appearance. It's all kind of bonkers. And the riffs are completely on point, too, because this movie is full of plot holes, stupid lines, camera equipment visible, boom mics visible, awful special effects. It is all here. Not to mention that our hero, Detective Cold Iron, is dubbed over by a completely different actor than the guy that played him. So every line delivery that he has comes off as a person reading information to you one word at a time. I cannot say enough positive things about Rotor. I was on a work trip for like a week one time and watched it at least two times a day after work just to fucking have something to listen to while I fell asleep. Rotor is the all-timer for now for me. Like I said, it goes back and forth with Guy from Harlem. It depends what type of mood I'm in. Sometimes Guy from Harlem is just more fun because because it's just like watching a five-year-old with a video camera trying to make a movie. Uh, Like I said, Rotor has a little more polish, which makes it fun in its own way. But you know what? 
that's going to end the top 20 riff track selections. And I think whichever one you pick, you're going to have a grand old time. And like I said, like, I'm not working here in conjunction with riff tracks, all right? I'm not making any money off this shit or anything like that. This is just, this stuff, I enjoy it so much. I wanted to share it with you all because maybe you'll enjoy it too. Maybe you'll have a shitty day and you'll throw on your favorite riff tracks and there you go. Or maybe it's just something to do for a couple hours. Have fun, show it to a buddy. I don't know, I don't care. I think any way you slice it, you're going to have a good time. And well, speaking of good times, we're going to have to put the good times on hold until it's time for a new Aqua Cave podcast to drop. But as always, thank you so much for coming along on the journey with us. And please remember to subscribe to the Aqua Cave. That way you get notified whenever new content drops. Folks, I'm Johnny C. And a winner is you. We will see you next time.